Welcome to the Benebris International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO Dan Mariash. Thank you for spending some time with us today. I hope you are staying home, wearing your masks, washing your hands, and taking good care of yourselves. Joining me today from Israel is Yossi Shane, head of Tel Aviv University's School of Political Science, Government, and International Affairs, and Professor Emeritus of Government at Georgetown University. Professor Shane is one of the world's leading scholars on diasporas. His latest book, The Israeli Century and the Israelization of Judaism, explores how Jews and Judaism have become what he calls increasingly Israelized throughout the 21st century diaspora. In our conversation, I'll speak with Professor Shane about what he means by Israelization, how Israeli Jewish identity has changed throughout the 21st century, and the future of American Jewry in the face of increased anti-Semitism. We'll also talk about the asymmetrical relationship between Israeli Jews and the Jews of the diaspora, and what decades of war and terrorism have done to the Israeli psyche. Yossi, welcome to the program. And I must admit, this is a great, great pleasure. I've known you for many, many years. I haven't seen you for quite some time. And uh, I'm delighted you asked me to come and speak to the people of Nebrith. Um, I know how active you have been in American Jewry, among American Jewry, and I have been privileged to work with you in the past. So I'm absolutely delighted to talk to uh, the crowd that you are uh, leading in Nebrith. Well, thank you. You know, the first question usually to an author is the one that I'm going to ask, because it's a, it, it's a, a real basic but very important question. What inspired you to write this book? Look, I've been thinking about those subjects for so many years. And um, I've written many, many other books on the subject of diaspora and international relations. And for many years, as you know, I was trying somewhat to avoid the case of Israel in terms of my scholarship, even though I've been invested in my Jewish identity, in my Israeli identity all my life. Um, but I was thinking lots about this. It came to me uh, quite some time ago that something is happening in the, in the Jewish people. Uh, not only demographically that the state of Israel is soon to comprise the majority of the Jewish people, but also the fact that the people who have been identified and defined by diaspora life are becoming more and more sovereign. Sovereignty is informing everything they are doing. And that relates to all the diasporas and of course to Israel. We're coming into this age where Israel is now 10 million people, no longer a small country. And of course, the changes that took place here, the massive migrations that came here, the, and at the same time, the supremacy of the state in terms of many other issues, including culture. Think about Jewish writing today, how much Israel is in the forefront of Jewish writing, Jewish music, Jewish food even. When I was serving uh, at Georgetown Center for Jewish Civilization, falafel and hummus became Jewish food. It, it, became, it, it became so evident to me that the Hebrew language is becoming so much dominating the life of the Israelis, including of the Haredim. So the processes of the fastest growing Jewish population in the world, which is Israel, with tremendous amount of growth, including the, uh, I would say, the fastest per capita growth in the OECD countries. Think about it. Israeli women deliver babies, 3.2 babies for a woman, which is remarkable. The longevity of Israel. And it's also the position of Israel, not only among Jews, but the position of Israel in world affairs. 
is a transformation of Jewish life. And I'm not talking about a triumphant moment or not. It's a transformation of Jewish life, which I wanted to see how it came about. And I wanted to check it in historical fashion. And that's why I went to check it from the first time Jews had sovereignty in the, during the first temple and how it evolved. How did it came about that the people who were informed by the diaspora are now informed by sovereignty? And that without saying anything yet about what happened to Jews abroad or Jews in the diaspora, above and beyond what you discuss, American Jewry, where the issue of ethnicity and identity of maintaining the community in America became so, I would say, daunting, so challenging because of the success of, of American Jewry in terms of the forces of assimilation or the forces of liberal, liberal countries. And, and so I wanted to see how this whole evolve and I wanted to write this book which will be accessible to everybody who wants to know about what the Jews are all about and to what extent this notion of sovereignty at the epicenter of world Jewry is really understood and, and, and explain it historically and go back and forth, back and forth and see what were the challenges before and how we deal with the challenges now. Well, much of what we do here, of course, is informed by our relationship with Israel. Uh, at what point was there a tipping point where the, the Israelization, uh, as, as you put it, uh, of, of much of our thinking and our worldview, at what point did, did that happen? Because, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, as a young, as a student, as a graduate student, uh, you know, we would go to Israel and uh, it would be uh, still a rare thing. There were students who studied in Israel, but not everybody was traveling at that time. The percentage of American Jews who had been to Israel was, was relatively small. Uh, it was uh, still difficult to make the trip. Uh, you had to make phone calls. It wasn't easy to be in contact. Uh, we, we thought then of, of Israel as a country uh, producing oranges, perhaps. And, and with what point, and I know high tech and startup nation had something to do with it, but where did that, that tipping point occur? Look, as you said, this is, there were several shifts that took place. And I don't want to go into all of history. And at, at certain points, you know, the, the, the leadership of the state of Israel claimed supremacy over the diaspora, but people in the diaspora were less interested or were kind of like skeptical about it from the time of Ben-Gurion. From the time Ben-Gurion met Jacob Blaustein and Jacob Blaustein, the head of the American Jewish Committee and told him that Israel is supreme and Blaustein told him, don't count us as a diaspora, don't count us as an exile, we have a homeland. And Ben-Gurion was leery about alienating American Jewry. This will change, I would say, in various, in, in various points. The first significant point that everybody will discuss, of course, uh, after the creation of the State of Israel, the 1956 war, the beginning of the relations with the Kennedy administration, was, of course, the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War, everybody understands, it was kind of a huge, significant kind of like milestone in what respect that suddenly Jewish sovereignty seemed so strong, something to be reckoned with, something to be proud of, and seemed also to create the new Jew. This was the first round of realization of American Jewry, French Jewry, British Jewry, that wow, there is something there. They won this massive war. This was also the time of awakening of religious Jews to see the state of Israel as a beacon in some respect of the redemptive moment. 
Now, it doesn't mean it didn't happen before with Rabbi Soloveitchik when he wrote Kol Dodi Dofek in the 50s, and of course with Rabbi Cook and others. But undoubtedly, the Six-Day War, the mega shift in terms of Israel's power, the fact that Israel's sovereignty is so powerful and it created something new, and so was really a tipping point. Then, of course, there were other tipping points. What you said, which is quite right, is the fact that Israel, in the last 30 years or so, or so changed its character from a country that was, as you said, identified with oranges and the country which was identified as the, as the pace of, of, of uh, uh, working the land, toiling the land, kibbutzim, to the startup nation. I put my book, The, uh, the, the Israeli Century, uh, not against, but sort of like in comparison to Sleskenbun, the Jewish century, where he basically said the story of Judaism and modernity is the success of American story. Well, Israel is a parochial state. It's kind of like a state that cannot kind of like become universal. And what I show in my book, which is remarkable, that the Israelis who are rooted are becoming more globalized than the Americans, the American Jewry, which is quite remarkable. That is that the transnational Israeli is, is so powerful in the startup nation because he's so rooted. The fact that he has a home to come back to. And the question of homeness is very important for the Jews. In that respect, of course, there were many other milestones, including, of course, the massive migration of Russian Jewry, including, of course, the growth of Israeli economy, which is now 40,000 per capita dollars, including, of course, this, this massive explosion of Israeli economy and technology, and the very idea of the growth of Israel, and all of which come against the backdrop of what happened in the diaspora itself with American Jewry, of course, as the number one factor because of the issues of assimilation, the, the, the crisis that you have among liberal Jews, and of course, the issues that are the idea of retain, retaining Jewish identity, which so much American Jewry is preoccupied with. Israel has become a place where retaining Jewish identity became a datu. This is it, you retain Jewish identity here. And that, I think, is a very important moment where you had taglit or Birthright Israel becoming so much an important vehicle toward it. All of this made Israel an attractive place to be. Attractive place as a universal place and an identity place. Tel Aviv is a universal place. I get all the students who want to come to Tel Aviv. It's, they can really express themselves universally here. And it's not going to be kind of like a ghetto for the Jews. They can be universal, and yet they can have, get their also identity in a Jerusalemite way. And the question is how to reconcile these tensions, which I explain between a startup nation and an alachic nation in Israel. And that's the big debate for Israel into the future, and of course, of Israel's relation with the diaspora. So let's, let's stay there for a second. One of the questions that we asked, even when we were students who were traveling to Israel in the, in the early 70s, we, we would ask Israelis at, at seminars and sessions that we would have, we would ask them the, the classic question, do you see yourself as an Israeli first? Do you see yourself as a Jew first? Uh, what, where is the balance? Um, it, that was an eternal question because we asked it for years. Uh, are you suggesting that perhaps uh, a certain equilibrium has been reached now in terms of that self-identity of Israelis? Absolutely. Israeli identity have shifted and the gravity have shifted. While the older generation, the founding father generation, came with a modernized concept that wanted to put somewhat away, and I deal with it very much in my book, the halachic conception of life, or the Jewish aspect of life, because it led them into calamity. That was the idea. 
I put the book between diaspora or exile and, and sovereignty. Exile and sovereignty played, it was the paradigm of Jewish identity. The paradigm of Jewish identity historically, from the time of the Babylonian exile, as I explained, was that the Judaism was always asking itself, is it possible to maintain our identity as a sovereign nation? And if we are not sovereign, what type of identity we want to keep? Is sovereign, in fact, diluting our identity, as happened during the Persian time, as happened, as, as happened during, of course, the Maccabee time, the two times that we have, and of course, the, the, during Herod time. And what happened is that there was, was always a question. The idea is, what is better for the Jews? Is sovereignty is important or not important? After the collapse of the Second Temple, and aside from the episode of Bar Kokhva, and aside of the episode of the, of the revolt of 131-35, there was no really any attempt of sovereignty. And the sovereignty was reached another peak during the 19th century or 18th, 19th century when other nations started to talk about it. The Jews awakened into a modern fashion. In Israel today, it's not only a modern fashion, it's an awakening of the past. And there is a big battle undergoing in Israel between how much we want to restore the past and how much we want to move into the future. So there is a much more Jewish element in Israel today. Much more you will see kippot, much more you will see people identify as Jewish as well. But we are shaping Judaism as we go. Israel is the place where Judaism, Judaism is being shaped. In the past, Judaism was shaped in the diaspora. American Jewry shaped Judaism, with Reform Judaism, with Conservative Judaism, with, with, with the Reconstructionist, whatever it is, within the liberal creed. The liberal creed in Judaism has become somewhat dissipated. It kind of weakened in comparison to the Israeli Judaism, especially because the Israeli Judaism, the religiosity and the ethnicity became imbued with nationalism. Nationalism, the us versus them conceptual understanding of Israel, helped create the community that all speak the same language and see the same sort of like uh, uh, a goal. Notwithstanding, of course, the rivalry and the bickering and the splits and the schism in Israeli society between halachic nation, between modernity and antiquity. And this is what I'm writing about to show what's happening. In addition, of course, we have the issue of the Arabs, etc., and the diaspora, what the diaspora is all about. The second point I want to make, Dan, if you allow me, because as, as a, a representative of Nebreth, think about it and you can tell me, who are today what I will call the role models of diaspora Jewry? I'm asking this question in my research, people asking students, who are your role models? Jewish role models say, these are the leaders of the community. People did not have any more role models. They didn't have the Heschels, they didn't have the Soloveitchiks, they didn't have sort of like the, the, the or Elie Wiesel that was a role model about the Holocaust as a key component of identity of Jews and memory. We don't have that anymore. We don't have that organizationally. We have, we have very important active members in organizations, but we don't have these Jewish role models like Rabbi Zacks in Britain, the last one in some respect. And that is a very important factor. The Jews of Israel may have many role models in the country in terms of writers, in terms of so in, in terms of cultures, and of course, in terms of politicians. They can identify with Bibi or they can hate Bibi. But that is where they are in terms of like the understanding of nationality that came to the fore with Israel, which was always part and parcel of Jewish identity from day one. What I show is that the Israeli people of today are somewhat similar to the old Israelites because Zera Israel, the seed of Israel, always came before Zera Akodesh, the, the holy seed. 
and how these two merge, the holy seed and the national seed, is very interesting in my book to see how this nationalism came about in the modern era vis-a-vis -vis the diaspora. You'll see one of the main, our main concerns today has been this uh, terrible spike in anti-Semitism all over the world. Uh, yes. We've seen it now with the coronavirus situation. A lot yes. of it is coming out of Iran, but not just out of Iran. If you look at the hate uh, websites uh, of these organizations, uh, you'll see that uh, Israeli Zionist Jews um, are, are cast as being responsible for the coronavirus. Now, you write that anti-Semitism perhaps doesn't uh, any longer inform the Israeli century. Um, how, do you, how do you see that? Israelis are just privy to the idea of, of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, for them, is the problem of the diaspora. They hate us, we're going to screw them up. That's what I'm, I'm excuse my language. We're going to go after them and we're going to kill them. We are about power. We are identified by power. We are not apologizing for anything. And this anti-Semitism is kind of like the idea of hating us. So they hate us, but they also respect us. China respect us. India respect us. European in Eastern Europe respect us. Some Americans respect us. Evangelists respect us. We're not concerned about it. We talk about powerful presentation in world affairs. And Netanyahu himself talked about us as an empire. I always said Israel is between hysteria and imperia. That's what I call it. We moved the two poles because of Jewish sort of mentality between the Gewalt syndrome and the total power syndrome. While anti-Semitism is certainly an issue that concerns world jury and diaspora jury because the idea is who is going to fight it? How do we fight it? When the Arab hate us or the, or the Islamists hate us, we go to fight. Every night we bomb in Syria. Every night we bomb in Syria. Every night we bomb in Gaza. Every night we have a problem with, with Hezbollah. This is our life here since day one. Now, it doesn't mean that we are not kind of like, we have, there is a vanity of power in Israel, perhaps, and people sort of like uh, understanding that uh, they're too many, they see themselves sometimes too powerful, but this is the psyche of the Israelis. Therefore, they are not so vulnerable to the idea of anti-Semitism, or I would say sensitive to it. Let alone, of course, to the anti-Semitism vis-a-vis, as you say in the corona, vis-a-vis -vis the ultra-Orthodox. Israelis en masse are not sympathetic even to that. This is what I'm saying, and I'm saying it's harsh words. They say, you know, if you don't take it, you come to Israel. And they are waiting now. People are talking about anti-Semitism as an opportunity of new Aliyah. You hear Herzog and others, new Aliyah from France, new Aliyah from Britain, new Aliyah from this. They, you know, we told you so. This is also kind of a vanity of Israel. We told you so. So it doesn't mean that they don't care about other Jews, but they also have the sovereignty inform them in a different fashion. Think about it. When Israel deal with the coronavirus, 20% of the doctors in Israel who are taking care of it are Arab Israelis. The state has to take care of the Israelis first. So there was a big debate. Should we get Jews, sick Jews to Israel? Should we allow them even to be buried in Israel? These were the case where Israelis are somewhat, I would say, forgotten the help they got from the diaspora. Many people blame the Israelis for being so arrogant or maybe forgetful how much the diaspora helped them. But the idea of anti-Semitism, this vulnerability, the attacks on synagogues, we always sympathize because this is our brothers and our sisters. But there's also kind of a sense among Israelis that this is their problem, it's not ours. What we are concerned about is what they call the new anti-Semitism, the BDS, the boycott, divestment, and sanction, when they want to undermine our legitimacy. So we call it also anti-Semitism. 
they use kind of anti-Semitism as anti-Jewish nationalism. And that's what happened in Durban and other places, because we know that just we are like the, the Jew among the nations, what people say. But many people in Israel don't think we are the Jew among the nations. They see kind of successes. They travel the world that they see, you know, Israelis travel. I, I write a lot about the Israelis who travel the world, warm the world. After the army, all the Israelis are going abroad. They are like all over the world. And they don't see themselves as vulnerable. They see themselves as powerful, including the Israeli high talk people. They don't talk about anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, therefore, is different for the Israelis than for diaspora Jewry, for whom the legacy of, of minority situation, of vulnerability, of religious minority, etc., etc., is always present in their lives. Well, one of, one of the things that continues really to amaze me is that, and you just mentioned it, you talk about, you, you mentioned Hezbollah on your north, you have Hamas, uh, you have Iran, continuing to loom over uh, Syria. The Iranians are in Syria. This is all going on, and, and, on the, and you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable. How has, and, and the terrorism uh, still continues. You just had an, an incident as we're talking this morning uh, where a, a soldier was killed by a rock that was, was thrown. This is, I mean, this is going on all the time. And yet, uh, the other side of that is, as you just said, Israelis travel all over the world. It is startup nation. Um, Israel is a is a global country. So, what has all of this done? The vulnerability on the one hand, and the the uh, ability to be a global people. Uh, how has it affected the Israeli psyche? And do you think that's understood by diaspora Jewry? Look, I think diaspora jury is a term also has to be um, qualified as a very well known. Depends where you sit, who you are. I have so many students at Georgetown and other places, kids who were born to Jewish families, but they, they, their first identity is not as diaspora jury. They're American, pure and simple, or Canadians, whatever they are. Some of whom, of course, have ties to Israel, emotional ties, and if they come on birthright or other programs like Kivunim, wherever they, say, they discover this, they understand the kinship ties. Uh, but they are not preoccupied with them. You know, remember, I also raised kids in America, went to school in America. It was not a day-to-day -day issue for them. They grew up as pure Americans. Um, what is what is the, the case here? In Israel, um, I think, especially in the last two decades, after the Second Intifada and the events following September 11, we lived in a situation which is no much, not so much of a threat because of the calamity that befell the Middle East. The Middle East have undergone tremendous transformation. States around us are no longer hating us in the same fashion. You see the, the, the plans right now in Saudi Arabia and others who are more leery about Shia Islam in Iran than, of course, of Israel. So Israelis see all this opening. Besides, you know, they live their life, the longevity in Israel is quite impressive. 82 years for a man, over 84 for a woman. And, you know, and all the reports they have, they're kind of happy. They are concerned about lots of other things about the, na the nature of the state. As I said, between modernity and antiquity, that's the key issues. But for them, they look at the diaspora as something that has gone kind of like weaker compared to Israel. When I grew up in Israel, when my cousins came to visit us from Brooklyn, we all waited for the uncle for Brooklyn to give us $20. Today, people are waiting for the uncle from Israel. 
the richness, the, the amount of millionaires in Tel Aviv, the money that exists here, the, the prosperity, change perceptions about the good life. What is the good life? Israelis, you know, they don't kind of like depend anymore on this money from America. And that's also changed their life. The younger generation don't know the difficulties that you are discussing about the threats. They have threats. They join the armies, they have war in Gaza and so on. But okay, uh, but the, the number of people who lost their lives in these battles, they're, they're not large. Uh, after the terrorist attack in 2001 and two, the second intifada and the suicide bombing, there is kind of like a growing forgetfulness. And yet in the psyche of collective memory, we're constantly going to Auschwitz and to Birkenau and we constantly fly above them and we see this kind of like our vulnerability. And this is the, this is the imperative. We have to be strong and we were the rise to kill and so on and so forth. That's what we are projecting to ourselves and to others. And sometimes, of course, there is the psyche of the older generation that this may be only, you know, the Maccabees lived for 80 years. Will we, will we surpass that? That's what Netanyahu asked. Will we be more than 80 years of sovereignty? That everything can collapse? I don't, I think what I wrote is that we live in the era of sovereignty, what I call it, is the end of Jewish chaos. No longer arbitrariness is informing our life. Stability, interesting enough. No longer the fear that they can be, this all thing, the cycle of exile and, and, and sovereignty can happen again. We no longer see the possibility of Israel's destruction. And everybody will tell you that if the Iranians will try to destroy us, so the entire world will be destroyed because as Israelis always said, we will not be the first to introduce. They mean the atomic bomb. But they always say, but we will not be the second also. So basically, they kind of like, they, they have this idea of a fear or of a, of a threat or even an imminent threat. And Netanyahu is excellent in manipulating this, I must say. It's not a political statement. Always moving from, from hysteria to imperia, as I said. Constantly moving between the fear of calamity and look how strong we are. This is part of the mentality of the Israelis. But by and large, they live their life. They live their life. They try to prosper now in the corona. They try to come back to the workforce. And we have a big problem with democracy. Like many other democratic regimes right now, we suffer from sort of like the lack of liberalism in society, or I wouldn't say lack of it, but the undermining of, of, of this creed and the entering of Jewish religious life. Think about the fact that we saw this week, 29% of Israeli kids at the age of six are ultra-Orthodox. This is what I write is our big challenge into the future. What will happen if this country will be ultra-Orthodox? Will you be able to defend the country? What will be this country look, look like? Lucky us, in my opinion, lucky us, we got all the Russian Jewry coming, we got all sorts of migration coming, and, and we also grew in terms of numbers for other Israelis, because it's not only large ultra-Orthodox families. But this is the big battle that ensuing in Israel, aside from the democratic character of the country. So, Yossi, last question. If you um, had to tell us one important theme or lesson that readers should take from your book, it would be? One important theme is that we are in a different period in Jewish history. This period means that we have tremendous responsibility. Israel changed the entire subject, for example, of Jewish morality. We can no longer talk about Jewish morality in Israel. It's sovereign morality while liberal morality of the Jews without state created tikkun olam as a morality. To what extent Israel can really be medinat mufet, a state of an exemplary state as people envision it? It's a big issue. 
to what extent we can really draw on the Jewish religious creed into the Israeli law. To what extent we can stay in touch with our kin brothers and sisters in America and see how we can basically incorporate or learn from the liberal creed and disseminate it into Israeli society and create mutual responsibilities across frontiers. We know as Jews that sometimes we feel too, you know, like powerful and so on. Things are coming, as you said, our way and we have to be prepared. The mutual responsibility formula is incredibly important. I call on Israeli leadership never, never to be, never, never to be arrogant in power. I call on them to pay attention to what happened in the diaspora as now we see in the coronavirus and not to think just like that we are immune and we don't need them anymore, as people think. I call on all of them to understand, for example, the disruption between Israel and liberal Jewry is dangerous. Some in Israel think that, you know, that our alliance with evangelical is much more important politically and otherwise. And I'm not saying it's not a good alliance. I'm not giving a judgment. But I think that to give up on others in America is going to be a big, huge mistake. Israel's mentality, Israel's morality is a critical vehicle for legitimacy. And so is also its memories. Its memories have to be constantly guarded against abuse, against abuse by others and against abuse by us. And all of this I'm discussing in part of a big discussion with philosophers and sociologists and all the Jewish rabbis across frontiers from the Eastern to the Western world. I talk about Sephardic Mizrahi Jews versus Ashkenazi, religious, ultra-Orthodox, religious Zionists, all of the theologies, how they evolved. And I'm trying to do it. I really try to do it in a language which will be completely accessible to all readers, that they could really take the book and understand, look, this is the story of the Jews. Interesting enough, they began as a nation, and now they're becoming more as a nation, not as a diaspora. What does it mean? Because diaspora was always a feature in their life, while other countries in the world are celebrating diasporas. And I'm just coming from India, just before the corona, coming from India. And we see Modi celebrating the, the, the Indian diaspora and so on and so forth. I came from, from Gujarat and others in Mexico. I, you know, I wrote many books on diaspora in America, in America how, the, um, our, our, how diasporas in America export American values. I see that we are a, re, a real model for world affairs. And we have to see these models not to be spoiled. There are lots of forces in Israel that are absolutely unaware of Jewish history, unaware of the challenges that have informed diaspora Jewry, sometime in an arrogant fashion, sometime in a provincial fashion. Israel is universal, but it's also very provincial. And you understand those who visit Israel see it. Uh, but yet it's a very colorful and exciting place. And I, and I warn them how to maintain it as such and maintain the big balance, because not that I think that immediately it will collapse and we will go into oblivion, but nonetheless, this is still a vulnerable project that is, cannot be, uh, its vulnerabilities cannot be ignored. And one of the issues is diaspora-Israel relation has to be nourished and has to be understood along the lines that I discussed when the, the domination of Israel culture and Israeliness is so strong. How do we play with it? And how do we basically uh, uh, combine all these forces to elevate the Jewish life and, Jew, and, and world Jewry altogether? Well, the book is The Israeli Century and the Israelization of Judaism by Professor Yossi Shane. It's currently a bestseller in Israel. It'll be published in English later this year and will be available online wherever you purchase books. Yossi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dan, for hosting me. Well, if you like what you've heard so far, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. 
And be sure to visit our website, benebrit.org, to learn about our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. For my guest, Yossi Shane, I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the Benebrith International Podcast.